This is Mike Wilbon from ESPN's Pardon the Interruption, and I'm speaking with Chad and Ryan on the Friendly Confines podcast. Chad, another special episode of the Friendly Confines long-form interview, and it doesn't get any better than our guest this week, that's for sure. Not at all. I mean, such a great, uh, just just such a great guest in Michael Wilbon from ESPN's Pardon Interruption and Washington Post. Uh, this is a guy that's been there forever, his roots on the South Side. What a great guy, Rhino. He was an absolute pleasure, and somebody who is on you know, our bucket list of people that we've always wanted to interview for this show and really some interesting stories about how he became a Cubs fan and why his father never went to Wrigley for over 20 years. Such an interesting and fascinating story with that. And if he was commissioner for a day, what would he do differently? He had some really excellent points. And plus with it being black history month, I loved some of his insight on how baseball can bring the game to urban communities um, and what they can do to create a better atmosphere for um, young black athletes to fall in love with the game. So there's a lot to unfold here. So please stick around and listen to this special edition interview of the Friendly Confines with Michael Wilbon from ESPN. Let's start here, Mike. Um, anyone who knows and follows your career knows you are a huge Chicago Cubs fan. I do know the story, but I would love for our listeners who may not know how Michael Wilbon became a Chicago Cubs fan, be it that you grew up on the south side of Chicago, where it's a predominantly White Sox neighborhood. How did that infatuation start for you when you grew up? Well, you know, there's, there's several parts to it. Um, I was a lot of a lot of people now who are 20 years younger than me. They'll say, "Well, I saw the games on WGN, and I lived in San Antonio, or I lived in Orange County, or whatever it is." Well, I'm old enough to have seen both the White Sox and Cubs on WGN because all their games were on. Were, were both teams were on, and so that wasn't it. Although you could see all the Cubs games, and you could, you know, that that wasn't the case in hardly any other uh, baseball town. But I think the greatest part of it, and I grew up as a little kid watching both teams, and my father died into a White Sox fan. Um, he took us to White Sox games. We didn't go to Cubs games as, as little kids. We went to White Sox games. And I rooted for both teams. I didn't, I didn't know any better. They didn't play each other. It didn't matter to me. I was rooting for a team with Chicago one as a jersey. But when I got to be 10 years old, uh, maybe nine, um, I started playing Little League in West Chatham Park. And the jerseys on some of those players, my friends, were, um, they said Ernie Banks Ford on the back of the jersey. So need I tell you who was a co-sponsor for our Little League? Oh, wow. And Alderman William Shannon at the time was the other one. And the two of them, as far as I know, and I did some asking around years ago, um, they were, every park didn't have a Little League. Every park didn't have a Little League even in 1969 when baseball was still king. And baseball very much was king, not, not pro football, baseball. 
in the late 1960s, even the early 1970s. And it, it, it turned after that. But when I was 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, I played Little League. Baseball was my first love. And the Ernie Banks sponsored my Little League. <laughs> so, you know, it's not, a, it's not a big jump. It's not a big leap. And Ernie Banks was the biggest star in town even when the White Sox were a better team in the late 60s when I started really paying attention when I was 7 and 8 years old. The White Sox had a pretty good team. Blew a, blew a chance to win the pennant in 1967. Um, I don't remember what happened in 68. The Cubs got better in 68. I think they finished in third place in 67 and 68. That was like triumphant considering where they'd been. And, um, you know, by 69, obviously, is famous and infamous. But by then, I was, you know, Ernie Banks was my favorite athlete. I guess he had to share that space with Muhammad Ali. And, um, I watched every at bat I could of Ernie Banks the rest of his career, which only was only a few more years. I mean, Ernie was you know retiring by what seventy one, so it's only the last four years of his career that I clearly remember. I remember a little bit maybe in the mid sixties, but again, Ernie Banks Ford in blue letters on the back of those uniforms, and um, you know I got to see him in subsequent years as a grown man, as grown men, and I was always uh, like I was a little child approaching him uh and he was always unbelievably gracious and he used to where he had these memory things he would do he would do he had these exercises to work on his memory so that he would not forget anyone or anybody or anything i, I need to do that I should have been doing it 20 years ago and i saw ernie banks at medina uh at the pga championship so i guess that must have been 1999 the sergio garcia duel and ernie banks was coming into the tent and another writer said to me, oh, there goes your hero. Are you going to say anything to him? And I go, nope, I'm not going to say anything because he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't even remember me. And so Ernie was sort of shimmying between press tables to get to the other side. And he looks down, and I'm writing at that point, and he says, hey, Michael, how you doing? Wow. And he says, you, you, you better get back out to the neighborhood. With, talk to the young guys out there sometime. And seriously, I could have fainted and died at that moment. It was like, like who is somebody in an earpiece? Is somebody in an IFB telling him who I am and where I lived? And and he, you know he just he this is what he did. He he loved making people feel good in that way. And so, um, but Ernie Banks was my favorite player. There was nothing that was going to make me root against Ernie Banks and Billy Williams and Fergie Jenkins and Ron Sano. And those became and teams stayed together. And those guys stayed together for years. Throw so Jim Hickman in there. You know, and, and, and Kenny Holtzman and Bill Hans, they, they stayed together for years. And you got to root for them and see them and felt like you knew them. And the Cubs were my team, and that, that's the way it stayed. So that's been, what is that, 50-plus years? Yeah. That's uh, such a such an amazing and cool story. I, I Obviously, I know you have so many memories as an adult, of course, going to Wrigley and, you know, seeing them win the World Series. But I'm curious about, as a child, Michael, do you remember going to Wrigley for the first time? Do you have oh, any yeah. memories of oh, that yeah. And, yeah. and what that experience was like for you when you got to walk in a Wrigley yeah. Field for the first time as a child? Life-changing. Um, and I don't mean in ways that people might think I'm talking about. So, again, I said my, my father's a Southsider and a White Sox fan. And one day I, when I was a I don't know, I have to be six or seven years old. I came home and Bill Veck was sitting on our front steps talking to my father. I don't even know how that happened. Jeez. I have no idea how that happened. I, and my father, you know, has been gone for 35 years. I can't go back and revisit it. But um, we had never been to Ridley Field. My father, and I've written about this, my father was one of the people who was turned away um, 
when he wanted to go and see Jackie Robinson play in Chicago for the first time. Mm. So this is sometime in the spring or summer of 1947. My father had been living in Chicago, had come up in the Great Migration from Georgia, had been in Chicago since he was 20, so he'd been there a year and a half maybe. And um, he wanted to go see Jackie Robinson play. And he was told to they, they weren't letting him in. And he vowed he would never go to Wrigley Field. Never, ever. He would never return to Wrigley Field. Which I understand much more now than I did when I was eight. But when I was 10, we would ask my father every summer, can we go to Wrigley Field? Can we go see the Cubs? And we would go to the players' park. You know, people would go to the players' parking lot back then. You could talk to players all day if they, if they had time. But we wanted to go and, and have this experience and see the Ivy and see it all in person. And you've got to understand, I understand Wrigley Field maybe eight miles from Comiskey. Yes, it's still Comiskey to me. Eight miles <laughs> difference, but it's not eight miles. It's, it's, it's light years, especially in the 1960s when Chicago was the most segregated city in America. Black people just didn't get on that L and take the train to Wrigley Field. Now you, you might have gone somewhere on the north side to work. A lot of people were going to be a domestic. Rogers Park was there was some integration in Rogers Park at that point, but you didn't just go to Wrigley Field, and not from the South Side. And we, my mother said, okay, she went to my father, and I could overhear them having the discussion, and she said, look, um, I know this happened. I know that it angered you to your core. It angers me hearing knowing the story, but you got to take these boys to Wrigley Field. It's been, it's been 22 years you've got to take them to Wrigley Field. So my father relented. He uh, said we could go as long as we saw the Atlanta Braves so he could see Hank Aaron play. Ferguson Jenkins pitched against the Braves that day. Henry Aaron hit a home run, and the Cubs won. I don't know how you can have a better result than that, but <laughs> the amazing. journey was much greater. I mean, walking to the L to get on it, to go past downtown, to go north of Chicago Avenue, to go to the north side, that was, that was a different existence. That was like going to a different city, like you needed a passport. I jokingly said my mother packed sandwiches, but I don't, I don't think that was a joke. I think she did. <laughs> it was that. It was, it was, you know, from, you know, I mean, I, I took the, I didn't, I did for the rest of my life have taken the train, taken the L to Wrigley Field, sometimes from that very home. Um, and it never struck me until I got older what was, you know, what was going on, how different it was from going to Comiskey, how even when I took my uh, prom date in 1976, God, it seemed like it was a lifetime later, it was only seven years, you know, she wanted to sit in the bleachers, and I'm like, I, you know, I don't know if this is good, 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 good an idea to sit in the bleachers. And I was looked at, she was so fair, skinned, and complexion, I'm not sure people in the bleachers knew what race she was, but I'm brown enough for them to know what, what I was, and the stairs, I will never forget them. It was like I was an alien to be in the bleachers in Wrigley Field in 1976. By the way, I've never sat in the bleachers again. Never. And I've been in Wrigley Field, so that's 43, 45 years ago. I've been in Wrigley Field in 45 years, I don't know, let's say 150 times, mm. maybe more than that, maybe 200 times. Never have I sat in the bleachers. And never will I sit in the bleachers. Um, that it, I guess you can call that scar tissue. But um, so going to Wrigley Field was a was a huge, unforgettable deal 
that impacted my life and views on lots of different stuff. Michael, I love that story. I appreciate it. Um, this is Chad, and, and I want to, um, before we pivot to current day Cubs, I'd like to hear your take on current day baseball and forget about COVID and all those different things. What do you think baseball needs to do differently to not only be more inclusive to, I mean, you mentioned early on, you know, baseball was king. Football is now king, right? Um, yeah. in, in certain parts of, of communities, basketball is, is king. Um, it, this is this is a time when baseball, I feel like, is at a at, is 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 potentially at a cliff where if they don't make the right decisions, they're going to alienate a lot of people. What do you think? If you were commissioner for a day, what would you do differently? Man, we better start another podcast. We better start another <laughs> session. because um, that would take a long time. I, I, I this baseball is the only sport where I think of it in just the way you pose the question. Because I don't think of basketball and football that way. There's there. there there's sports that have made big changes along the way. Baseball, for the longest, made seemingly none. It's like you can, you can. The, the line of demarcation is the the adoption of the DH. What was that? 1972 or three mm-hmm. for the American League. Um, there's so many things. I, I and, and and yet there are things I don't want to touch. Yet you know Tony screams at me that I'm a purist. I'm not a purist. I, I there's some changes I could take. I don't want to see seven inning doubleheaders. I don't want to see that. I, I don't really want to see guys on second base to start extra innings, but I'll take it because the games are too long. I would shorten. I would figure out a way to shorten games to, I mean, you know, Joe DiMaggio said he never played a game that lasted longer than two hours in his entire career. So games should not last longer than two and a half hours. When I was a kid, games lasted two and a half. I, I know because I, I went to, I would leave, leave St. Ignatius and get on the train and go to Wrigley Field and first pitch was 125 and by 4.30, I was at home. Yeah. I had taken the train home. And I, I, I didn't leave in the sixth inning. I watched the whole game. I was, still, I was home three hours later on the south side, which means the games are taking 2.05, 2.10, 2.25, or maybe 2.30. But now games are interminable. It's ridiculous. I would do something to shorten games. If that meant putting a clock on people, fine. I would, I would, I, and I hate the notion of clock. I would do that. Um, first of all, but all of this has to be governed by labor peace. And baseball ownership and labor are just, they're just too ornery with each other to get it, and they they don't care enough. They don't. They don't care enough because we see the labor stoppages, we see the work stoppages, we see it every few years. We see they come back the very next round of negotiations and don't give a damn. And I understand. And 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 unlike other people, like yesterday, I just said this on PTI when Tony said, you know, he talked about players having leverage and wanting to use it all. And I said, Tony, this comes after a hundred years of the owners having all the leverage and using it all. All I have to do is say reserve clause. So I am not easily swayed by either side. I just know both sides uh, are foolish. They've hurt the game as much as they've helped it. I understand I'm the son of a a Teamsters Union member and a Chicago Teachers Union member. So I, I, I understand um, togetherness in labor. I get it. But baseball is not helped anymore by sort of this hammering of each other to where a season can be missed like this one. Um, hockey finally got its act together after missing one, so maybe baseball has to have one too. The NHL actually benefited from it in the long term. But I don't know. I don't, you know, so there's rules. Like when I have a DH 
I, yeah, I, I think I would leave the DH in the American League and not have in the National. I like the difference between the two. I don't care about any sort of forced uniformity. Um, but you'd have to – by the way, I agree with – there's another rule change I agree with. You can't come in and pitch and throw one pitch to one or, you, or pitch to one batter because it it's one of the things that lengthens the games. Stepping out of the batter's box, not allowed. One of the things that lengthens the games. Um, so there, there are things like that. The time of the game is a, is a major thing to me because it drives away viewers. It drives away participants. Hey, guys, it's Sylvie from Waddle and Sylvie on ESPN 1000. You're listening to my guys, Chad and Ryan, on the friendly confines. My son is 12 years old, about to be 13, played two years of Little League and said, Dad, I'm, I'm, I don't love it. It's not, it's not, it doesn't move fast enough for me. And you know that, that's a big complaint. And, it, and this kid is going to be about six foot three, and, and he's lefty, and he can throw the ball. You know, he'll be able to throw the ball about 90 miles an hour with, with no practice pitching. Which, of course, that would have been that would have gone toward my retirement. His being able <laughs> to be a lefty throwing about nearly a hundred, and he was pretty good. That's probably his best sport. His father's first love is baseball. He doesn't play it. And then we go. He says, "Can we go? To, can we go see Cubs Cardinals this weekend?" We hop on a plane, we fly home, we go see Cubs Cardinals. So he loves. He still has it in him somewhere deep down in there, but I can't pull it out enough of him to make him play it. He's thirteen. He's going to high school. He won't play baseball. And it's all the same stuff we're talking about. What, what are the things we could change? And, you know, baseball is going to have to take more seriously the, it, in being inclusive in terms of participation. It's lost a generation of African-American kids, the kids between when I grew up and people who are 25 years old now. Baseball wasn't, it wasn't on their dance card. That's, that ought to be embarrassing. And I know it was to Bud Selig and Henry Aaron, who I talked to and listened to and listened to agonize over what it was they could do. What was in their power? And you just, I'm sorry for going on and on. So you guys, I told you, you guys got me on one of these topics now. <laughs> and it's just, uh, I would change so much um, about not the way the game is played necessarily, although I hate launch angle and the discussion of all this crap. Play the game. Put the ball in play. I hear people say, oh, runs better than don't count. Really? So if I bat in a run, this is not to my credit, if a run crosses the plate and I drove it in, so you mean to tell me that, that, that all those runs batted in by Henry Aaron, which, of which he's number one all time, they don't matter? Did Ruth have like 175 runs batted in a couple of times? It didn't matter? I, I hate the way the game is discussed. I hate the way the game is being taken away from the managers by these numbers crunchers. I, I literally find them loathsome. I find it detestable that a pitcher would be taken out of a postseason game in the way that we saw last year. It's, it's loathsome. I don't care what they think they know or how many sheets they can put up in the dugout. I don't care. They've ruined the game. If you take the game and you hand it to a manager and a numbers-crunching bean counter who can convey – his feelings with somebody in a dugout, that means you're taking the game away from the players. Why the hell would I want to see that? Why would my 12-year-old want to play that game? So it, I, I watch it. I'm going to give in. No matter how good or bad the Cubs are, I'm going to watch my 150 or more games this year, plus other games. I'm going to watch 200-plus games. And I'm going to get angry and turn the TV off sometimes because baseball is killing itself and the people who are at the top of the pyramid aren't smart enough or don't have the guts enough to solve it.
I'm George Will, and you're listening to the Friendly Confines podcast with Chad and Ryan. With February being Black History Month and, you know, certain steps that you were talking about need to be taken by Major League Baseball. In in your opinion, though, what what has Major League Baseball done that you feel like has been good? Um, I, I point to maybe like the uh, Negro Leagues and how they have been so uh, amazing about recognizing the league now even more so and including them in the statistics. And then what are still things, and, and you kind of touched on it in your last answer, maybe a little more about what they still need to do to bring in more African-American players into the league or to introduce the sport to more kids who would love the sport for that matter? Yeah, a great question. And part of that, they just they made a great hire with Ken Griffey Jr. Um, and, and there's so many other people who have helped in this effort. Um, but 25 and 30 years ago, they were fighting against, I mean, like a hurricane because it just wasn't this, it wasn't a sort of real concern. And there has been real concern. Um, you just mentioned, there's one thing you just mentioned, it's both. I can use it as the one example, both sides of the coin. I mean, Major League Baseball should have done what it did with the Negro League statistics 20, 30 years ago. And I can't believe it wouldn't have been suggested. I mean, there are people who have been in Major League Baseball front offices, like Jimmy Lee Solomon, who isn't anymore, but who was one of the great human resources um, in my way of thinking. And there, there, there are a handful of people like that who – you know, they, they, their minds needed to be mined for for ideas, and, and some of these things should have been implemented. Uh, and so Major League Baseball did it, which is a good thing. It did it year, decades late, which is a bad thing. I'm glad they did it. I, I'm not a, I, I don't believe that, you know, it's too late to do it. It's late, but it's not too late. Um, and so, there, but we could, you know, we could go through things like that. Um, but I, I think the actual... The way the game is played is what bothers me as, as, as much as what we just talked about. And this whole notion of me being angry about put the ball in play. Instead of every single hitter trying to launch a home run. I mean, that's not – the entire Cobb wouldn't have existed. Mm-hmm. The whole first – baseball history would start with, like, Ruth's sixth season. <laughs> right? I mean, so yep. all these other so, – and, and what's more exciting than people on base? They're not on base. Trying to figure out what to do. You know, I used to sit with my son when he was playing and started to play. And I do it now, too, if we're at a game. And we go to lots of postseason baseball. First in Chicago to see the Cubs. You know, he came to see the Cleveland games. He, you know, we, we've gone to Washington games every year, including – I don't know if he was at the game. No, they get clinched on the road. But we sit when there are people on base, and I go, okay, where's the cutoff going to? You know, what do you do if you're the pitcher? Are you looking him back? Are you throwing over? What happens – with first and third, does the catch to throw through the second base to stop a guy trying to steal um, with less than two out? What do you What do you do here? And you don't have any of that if guys are just trying to launch, and the launch angle is all that matters. Yep. And it doesn't make the game better. It's crap to say that makes the game better. It may make it more marketable for a few people, but were the game not marketable, even though they weren't marketing geniuses, to see Minnie Minoso on, on, on the base pass, to see, to see Jackie Robinson on the base pass? Hell, let's modernize it somewhat to see Ricky Henderson on the base pass. This, this wasn't Pete Rose. This wasn't exciting. And so I just, I, I, I find myself um, <laughs> withdrawing yeah. from conversation because I get so angry with people who don't believe what I believe 
um, or who don't at least entertain the notion that today's baseball isn't the only form. In fact, it's an inferior form of entertainment. Inferior. If I got to see a three-and-a-half, three-hour and 50-minute National League game where there were eight pitchers used on one team, that's an inferior entertainment product. Yeah. If you're, uh, if you're looking for a Cubs podcast, I will promise you that none of our innings ever deal with analytics. It's not in our world. <laughs> so if I may, I know we're, we're coming up on our time. I'd like to ask you the question. Put on your Cubs hat. As a fan, what are you feeling right now? This has been uh, an unremarkable uh, offseason, I think, to say the least. Yep. It's been an eye-opening offseason with some of the cost-cutting measures. How are you feeling about this team? Are you feeling like they're, they're throwing in the towel for the rebuild now, or do you feel like there's glimmers of hope? Because the, the, offensive, uh, the offense and, and the lineup on the field still largely is a lot of big names, but they sure don't have anybody on the mound right now. So how are you feeling? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, this is a year. I'm, I'm taking a deep breath and just saying, okay, I've, I've been on pins and needles for uh, since 15. So 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and even 20 because I got off to a good start. So six seasons I'm on pins and needles. I am uh, making my wife crazy because I've got um, the television is always inches from me on a phone now. Hmm. I mean, 15, 16, 17, I just, I don't care where we were at dinner. We could have been at the White House. And I was going to snatch out a phone, which would have angered President Number Forty Four, who's a White Sox fan, um, Barack <laughs> Obama. And I had to take a lot of grief for that. Um, we went back and forth, and I even I had communication with him recently, and I said I'm going to root for the White Sox this summer because they're going after something. We're we're not going after it. Look, I, I am ne- I'm never going to be anything but Cubs first, and pitching can emerge. I mean, look, we had proven entities on the mound for the last since 15 and we got one and that's I, the disappointment for me is that we didn't get a second one or get to a second one. Not, not not that you know i hate seeing theo lee that may be the biggest disappointment but we, we we didn't get close enough to the second one and um so now i'm just taking a breath i'm like okay i'm i'm shutting it down if they can shut it down i can shut it down mm. so i'm going to sort of shut it down i'm going to watch games and be much more leisurely about it the way I was the previous, you know, 57 years of my life. I'm, I'm gonna, whenever we can go back to the ballpark, I will go sit in my usual, you know, area of seating, preferred area. But I'm not gonna um, check every inning every day like I did for those years. Um, I'm not gonna be on pins and needles. I'm not gonna be nuts. And I'm gonna watch more White Sox games. I'm gonna watch more White Sox games. Kenny Williams is a dear friend. Um, I am. I'm gonna. So is Doc Rivers. All these, all these White Sox guys. Now I got to deal with. But I'm not gonna fight it. I'm gonna root for them. I told Doc Rivers that the other day, and he said he's gonna faint dead away. Doc, <laughs> Doc Rivers is another, another guy who, yep. you know, died in the world White Sox fan. I'm sure you guys know that. Yeah. And I've been taking grief for them for years. And I said I'm not even gonna give you guys grief back. I'm going to, because you know what? I grew up there. I grew up on the South Side. I grew up going to that to 35th and Shield, I don't know what it's called now, uh, to Comiskey Park. I'm never going to call it whatever that guaranteed loan. I'm never calling it that. And uh, I'm going to – I don't know if I can go there this summer. I don't know if that will be allowed. But I'm going to – you know, I'm going to quietly golf clap, polite golf clap route for the White Sox this summer. And, you know, if the Cubs start to over overperform, then I will be out of my mind again. I'll go back on everything I just said and be an obnoxious fool 
um, for as long as the Cubs stay connected with the other teams uh, in the in the division. It's so funny you say that, Mike, because Chad and I have debates back and forth. I kind of am like that, saying, hey, is it okay if I cheer for the White Sox a little bit this year, knowing what we've seen from the north side? So I, I, I'm on your side on that. I just want the record to show, Mike. I'm, I'm with you on that one. Hey, well, I you want- know what it is? I mean, White Sox fans, look, I can say this because I'm a South Sider. There ain't a whole lot of gracious behavior going on <laughs> from the South Side to the North when it comes to ball teams. Okay, sure. I can say that because I'm, I'm, I'm on the side of the offending party. But I'm not paying them any attention. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the high road, and I am. I'm gonna, you know, every day I'm gonna start off. Whenever this season starts, I'm gonna start off um, looking at White Sox games. Yeah. I, I am. I, I'm excited to sort of see what they put together. I don't know that it's enough. You know, sometimes I look at the just the makeup of the team, and I wonder, you know, whether that will work. You look at you look at any team and wonder that. You always, you know, you don't ever know that the makeup is going to go, that the guys are going to love each other so much or have the kind of chemistry that will work. So I'm hoping that works. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not, you know, when, when the Cubs and White Sox, I mean, when the White Sox and, 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 and the Astros were playing in the World Series in 2005, my co-host, my dear friend and co-host, Tony Kornheiser, asked me on the show, he said, before the White Sox quenched that night, he said, are you going to root for the other team? I said, Tony, the other team is always one not wearing Chicago on its chest. You think I'm going to root for a team that says Houston over a team that says Chicago? That would make you a fool. And that's always the case for me. If the White Sox play late into the summer, I am going to – I usually go. I also have a great relationship with uh, the front office and and particularly Jerry Reinsdorf, who has been so gracious to invite me out to take part in things – and charitable events and community events. And I try to say yes to every one of them and I will go happily and even stay for a game. And I'm not saying I'm going to put on a Jersey. If I do, it's got to be either Louis Aparicio or Minnie Minoso. That's as far <laughs> as I can go. I'm not saying I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to rule it out. Hey Mike, we'll leave it with that. I mean, listen, we could obviously talk to you for another three hours, but we know you're up against uh, getting ready for your show, but uh, somebody who's a friend of our show now, who we've had the honor also of bringing on, is George Will. Um, we had Mr. Will join us on an episode, and I'm curious, is he your cohort that? at the – oh, my God, that was a thrill, too. And, and he's your cohort at the Post. I'm curious if you guys, how often, if at all, you guys interact and talk Cubs baseball when you guys are at the paper together. Well, story. Will, his office was elsewhere. Mine was on the fifth floor with everybody else. Um and let me, I'll just uh, tell you a quick story. So there were times, a couple of times Georgia sent me notes, just little, a little handwritten note on, on stationery saying I love that. It, it, it's been about baseball, I think, each time. And it's, it happened three or four years and years ago when I was covering, covering baseball, which I, which I really don't do anymore. And, but I'll tell you this. So the first postseason game the Cubs had played in my lifetime, so this is September of 1984, um, against the San Diego Padres. Um, I sat in Wrigley Field in the auxiliary press box, and I'm sure this was done purposely by somebody who was older and knew all of our histories and the history of what we'd written and, and, and what we believed in and what moved us. I was seated next to George Will for the first two games, opening two games of that series, which is because, of course, won both games. Um, 
with Rick Sutcliffe pitching game one. Yeah. I think game one was 13 to nothing. Yeah. Yep. And I sat next to George Will. And it's, it's one of the great highlights, professionally speaking, of my life to sit next to George Will at Wrigley Field in October, leaves having already turned gold and rust and red and whatever else they were. It was a, the lifetime. And he won't remember. He, didn't, he probably didn't know who I was. So that I was 25 years old the day that game that day was played. Yes, I've been working for the Washington Post for four years, and I've been a sports writer for all four of those years. I don't. I don't think I wouldn't. Bet, I would bet against George Will knowing who I was. It was a thrill for me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I've look. I've read George Will my whole life, and even though we are largely on opposite sides of the political aisle, I love his writing. Went to school literally on his writing, and just the way he wrote columns and I wanted to be a columnist and there are people who I read in Chicago every day like George Will, like Mike Royko, like the guys in sports but Royko and Bob Verde and all the great columnists of the time, Bob Green, that I was growing up there that I read and sort of stole and incorporated things from them and so George Will is one of those people and uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know that I ever sat next to him at a sporting event again but I sat, I sat next to him in those two games. And once again, our thanks to Michael Wilbon. It was such a pleasure to talk to him, Chad. So good. Really had so some good. fantastic things to say. Very exciting. And, uh, man, that's one uh, interview I certainly will not forget for a long time. Yeah, and it's just, you know, sometimes we dig deep into the here and now, right? We dig deep into, you know, what the Cubs are doing at this very moment or this week or front office decisions and 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 to go deep into you know cultural discussions and and history of of Chicago and and race and and some of the questions and and some of the answers that that uh, that Mike Wilbon was able to share to us. I mean, I, I just it, the thing that just really resonates with me is just you know even at his stature now he says he will never sit in the bleachers at Wrigley, and it's just it's something to continue to be aware of and and, and to think of you know that that. It, it's it's different for for people in different realms and and his openness um, and also just his willingness to have those conversations with us and our listeners such a privilege absolutely well said and uh, with that that is going to do it for this special long form edition of the friendly confines podcast be sure to listen to more interviews as they come your way for Chad I'm Ryan we'll talk to you next time everybody have a good one see you at the ballpark everybody. Don't let anyone say that it's just a game For I've seen other teams and it's never the same When you're born in Chicago, you're blessed and you're healed The first time you walk into Wrigley Hey everybody, this is Ryan Dempster and you're listening to Chad and Ryan on the Friendly Confines Podcast. Hey everyone, I'm Chad Gordon. And I'm Ryan Lieber. We're the hosts of the Friendly Confines Podcast. Each week we'll bring you the latest Cubs news from the fans' perspective with some of the biggest names in sports. Joe Buck, welcome to the Friendly Confines with Chad and Ryan. Yeah, oh my God, I'm happy to do it. Pat Hughes, welcome to the seventh inning. Happy to be here, Chad.
It is Len Casper. You got it, Ryan. Chad, happy to be with you guys. The Hawk, Andre Dossett. What a smartest thing, I'm doing fine, thank you. We're also excited to bring you new episodes as part of the Barroom Network. So if you're a Cubs fan or even just a baseball fan, be sure to check out the Friendly Confines podcast every week on the Barroom Network. This is Mike Wilbon from ESPN's Pardon the Interruption, and I'm speaking with Chad and Ryan on the Friendly Confines podcast.